Good morning. Welcome to Ordinary Life. Ordinary Life is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church in Houston, Texas. And um, good morning to you. Good morning, Bill. So <laughs> say something about our podcast. Yeah, so we have a podcast that we release every Thursday morning that we call In Between for a lot of reasons. It's in between me and Bill or someone else. It's in between Sundays and we're in between the no longer and the not yet coined by Mr. Bill Curley, Dr. Bill Curley, Reverend mm -hmm. Dr. Mr. Bill Curley. <laughs> and we are available on um, Apple iTunes, Spotify, and you can find it through our website as well. So it's been fun. 50 it weeks. Have you ever done any analytics on it? See how many people listen? Every now and then I remember too. I can't remember what the sort of, it's about over the week, about 45 people via the website. I don't okay. know if that means people listen to it via Apple iTunes. Um, other than that, we're trying to decide if we're worth it. <laughs> so we, we want to let you know that next Sunday uh, we'll have a guest speaker here. Wayne Herbert has arranged for Brandon Mack, who is one of the organizers and one of the Black Lives Matter movement here in Houston will be here to speak. Uh, I've not had a chance to talk to Brandon yet, but we'll do that this week and we'll figure out a format, um, hopefully for Wayne to be majorly involved in that. The next week, Holly will be off. Um, and I don't know yet kind of what I'm gonna do that Sunday, <laughs> something. We may just have, um, Sherry and I watched a nature program last night on National Geographic. That was an hour of silence. You could totally do it that. It had music, yeah. but boy, the scenery was just so spectacular. Mm -hmm. It was just, it was really wonderful. Uh, then the following Sunday, which will be May 30th, Holly and I are going to do kind of a reflection on the time that we've been teaching together during this shutdown time. Yeah. And then the next time, Holly and I will be here to welcome it's a, a couple handful of people. A handful who, of people, we, more than a handful of people. Yeah, and we will have protocol for you guys to know the details of around how we are going to do in person. We're following the same guidelines that St. Paul's is putting out. It will be a limited sign up of probably about 30 people that first Sunday, and we'll kind of measure from there how we can in increase or not. Um, but you'll get all the details soon. Yeah, the steering committee meets tomorrow, mm -hmm. and Holly is the head of that committee. John Watson is on it, so um, if you want to communicate your hopes, fears, desires, whatever about the first Sunday in June, you can do that directly through the Ordinary Life website. There's a place, I think, on nearly every page where it says contact mm -hmm. us, right? And we should say we will still continue to live stream. We will that, that option will be available for the no matter what. It has been before pandemic right. and it will continue to be. And I want to thank you uh, for your generosity, financial generosity. Um, we continue to reflect as a steering committee on the worthy causes um, where to distribute the money that you give. Every penny that you give goes to some worthy cause. Mm -hmm. We're open to receiving worthy causes. Uh, differently than we have in the past. We're giving out chunks of money throughout the year this year. It seems that the economy and the circumstances call for it. And there are people who are literally having trouble paying rent. So we're trying to kind of put money in the hands of those organizations. So, um, 
I used to do this. We used mm -hmm. to have a, a hubbub, if you remember. Um, people would, we'd have announcements and then people would take a break and go get sacred cookies and coffee and I'd call people back this way. Mm -hmm. So what I want to say is no matter uh, who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So we want to begin this time today with a quote from Teilhard de Chardin. I am quite positive that these are the first words of his I was ever exposed to. And as far as I can tell, he wrote these words in 1936. That's a year before I was born. And I encountered these words sometime, I think, around 1966. And um, the quote I have in mind is this. Someday, after we have mastered the winds, the waves, the tides, and gravity, we shall harness for God the energies of love. And on that day, for the second time in the history of the world, we shall have discovered fire. Or man will have discovered fire. He didn't know any better. <laughs> I don't know how many times I've encountered these words over the last, since I first encountered them. They're used, um, I know that the first book of Adaramud Amirkus that I read, and I'm going to hmm. refer to him today, he begins the, his, that book with, uh, with this as kind of the epigraph or whatever that you call it at the very beginning. And um, what made Holly and I think about this quote is that today, we are concluding our talks based on the collection of sayings from the early Jesus community known as the Lord's Prayer. Now, the phrase we're looking at is traditionally translated, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Neil Douglas Klotz renders this line this way, for you are the ground and the fruitful vision the birth power and fulfillment as all is gathered and made whole once again. And Eugene Peterson, and this is what led us to um, the <laughs> Tayar quote, Eugene Peterson translates it this way. You're in charge. You can do anything you want. You are ablaze in beauty. Yes, yes, yes. And before we're done today, um, I want to talk some about how how the prayer actually was constructed and this, how this was added at the very end. Yeah. Do you have the little remote for this slide? Show? I do. Okay. Will and you, I didn't get it out. That's all right. You hand it to me when you're ready. <laughs> so I've loved how congruous these lines are from Teilhard and Peterson's last line of the Lord's Prayer. This is, from, as Bill said, one of the most popular quotes of Teilhard de Chardin's. And, you know, I don't actually even know its original source. Uh, I, I wrote um, a long essay about Teilhard not too long ago and could not find the original source to this quote. It seems to have been something that was not in one of his books. Um, but it's so poetically beautiful, but we're kind of left wondering, what does it mean? I want to suggest that in some ways it's about alchemy, how the elements combine to create not just matter, but also energy. And fire is one of the five platonic solids, which represent the five basic elements, earth, 
air, fire, water, and the ether, or cosmos, if you will. And here's an uh, example of how these are framed in sacred geometry. And the tetrahedron is associated with fire, which perpetuates balance and stability. The cube is associated with the earth and reconnecting energy to nature. The octahedron is associated with air, which cultivates acceptance and compassion. And the dodecahedron is associated with the universe, representing mystery and meditation. And then the icosahedron is associated with water and enhances creativity and expression. Um, I love the sacred geometry drawings. I think it's pretty amazing that you know, these, these shapes are the foundations of, of fractals and repeating, um, repeating shapes in the universe or in nature. Plato said that the dodecahedron was used for arranging the constellations in the whole heavens, but the universe began in fire. And as we know, the universe is in constant evolution. The elements are continually conspiring to harness, as Teilhard said, the energies of love. For certain, fire existed before Prometheus discovered it, but human use of fire has led to incredible and awesome polarities. On the one hand, fire is associated with beauty. I think one of the most mesmerizing things I have ever watched is glass blowing. Have you ever been to either the Tuhuli Museum or a glassblowing studio? I have done both. Yeah. We visited the Chihuly Museum in City Center in Seattle some years ago. And have you been? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, the, that picture is from when I, we went. I, have, I took a picture of that as mm -hmm. well. And I took many pictures mm -hmm. inside, which mm -hmm. you were permitted to do. It's just amazing. Yeah, it's um, I mean, breathtaking. What, what can be made from glass, which is made from sand is just incredible and glass is liquid and it, it's just such a slow moving liquid that it, it takes years and years and years to change. So this is just a beautiful use of fire in my mind. And on the other hand, fire is used for destruction. A hundred years ago, this Memorial Day, one of the worst acts of racial violence occurred in the Greenwood area of Tulsa, Oklahoma. It became known as the Tulsa Massacre. It was an 18-hour rage of burning black businesses and re residences instigated by a white woman's claim that a shoe shiner had assaulted her in an elevator. The claim was never proven. These things often weren't. But the massacre and the ensuing fires of this entire area of Tulsa destroyed um, 6,000 residences hospitalized at least 800, and only 39 were officially pronounced dead, but hundreds and hundreds more were unaccounted for. So it destroyed this enclave of hope and prosperity in the black community. It was called Black Wall Street. As recently as October 2020, so last year, evidence of mass graves containing the remains of hundreds of murdered black people have been excavated near, the, near where the fires were. And Black Wall Street was a prosperous business area in a place that was still blighted by segregation, Jim Crow, was completely destroyed. So fire creates, fire destroys. It is a blaze in beauty. And we arise from the ashes. And as Eugene Peterson says, yes, yes, yes. I see this 
idea of fire and love is congruent. And of course, when we talk about love, I mean, we've heard things like burning passion. We talk about the flame of love, the warmth of being held. Fire is matter, and it's also energy. It's equated with action, passion, transformation. It is an evolutionary and ecological necessity with both, as I said, destructive and creative powers. And love is like this. It's able to hold the same tension of creation and destruction. It's never one-dimensional. And perhaps what Teilhard is suggesting is that human energy is indeed an aspect of fire, an amalgamation of all the elements that activates love into form or into being. So what does that mean? That's what I would like to sort of talk about today. How can a feeling become a form? And how can we harness that feeling to become something that we can see and touch? So let's bring Jesus into this conversation. <laughs> uh, it is impossible to live in American culture without knowing something about Jesus. Um, Christmas is, of course, the big holiday for the religion of consumerism. Easter is unavoidable. And my hunch is that if you are listening or watching this today with us, you have not only grown up with Jesus, but you know a fair amount of Jesus stuff. <laughs> we know the familiar parables, the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the good Samaritan, you likely know many of the Beatitudes that we have gone through in the last several months. I recently conducted a funeral, and I can safely say that I doubt that more than 5% of the people attending that funeral that day ever go to church. And yet, when it came time in the liturgy to say the Lord's Prayer, not a person opted out. Everybody could do it. However, I fear that what most people come away with when it comes to Jesus is that he was a historical figure to be admired, someone about whom we are supposed to have certain beliefs. The question that people most hear about Jesus is, do you have faith in Jesus, or do you believe in Jesus, or have you accepted Jesus as your personal Savior? And the fact is that for the better part of its history, the Christian movement has put a lot more emphasis on the things we know about Jesus. In fact, the word orthodox has come to mean having the correct beliefs about something, particularly about Jesus. And then this has been the emphasis of organized Christianity for well over 1,600 years. In the beginning, however, what being Christian was about is not admiring Jesus, but rather <clears throat> acquiring his consciousness. Hmm. The, early, the goal in the early church was to acquire the consciousness of Jesus. And, and uh, it was not about having an appropriate or right set of beliefs about Jesus. So this, this is something that I think as we wrap up this thing on the Lord's Prayer, it is important to have in mind. Hmm. The central challenge of Christianity ought to be this. How do we have the, the consciousness of the mind of Jesus? My current belief and this is something I've changed over the years, but 
my current belief is that what it means to be Christian is to have a relationship with the God of Jesus, with the faith that this relationship will not leave us unchanged. And um, if you want to go back and read the authentic letters of, of Paul in the New Testament, uh, you will see that Paul emphasizes this. He says, have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus our Lord. So how do we learn to see through the eyes of Jesus, to feel through his heart? This is what actual Orthodox Christianity is really about. It's not about what we believe. It's about how we behave. And this is the fire that burned in the hearts of those first followers of people of the way. It's what the Chardonnay was talking about, and it's what I hear Holly talking about when she's talking about alchemy. Spiritual work is about allowing this brooding, creative force to hover over us and pull us forward in the way that we're talking about today. Mm. That's one of the main thrusts of the writings of, of Teilhard is the belief that there is something pulling us forward mm -hmm. toward an omega point. Yeah. What's so, I mean, I, I imagine, and you're the biblical scholar here, but that Jesus wasn't about like, believe in me and have faith in me, but find the you that can be love in the world, that can be this in the world. And this is, this is hard. <laughs> But easy at the same well, time. I, I cannot tell you how many times I've heard Richard Rohr say that Jesus did not come to change God's mind about us. Mm -hmm. He came to change our mind about right. God. And it was all about his saying, look, I have been in the desert. <clears throat> this is the parable that was created. I've been in the desert. I've had this encounter with God. And I've come away with with away from that with a solid conviction that I'm a child of God, yeah. and so are you. Yeah. I just, um, I've had on my bedside for some time um, a book by Jung, uh, Jung and Alchemy, <laughs> or Psycho, whatever it is. It's Jung's thick volume on Alchemy of the Soul. And um, you know, it, it just was so interesting, even just reading the first bits, that uh, well, some of his first words are about not relating to a God out there, but to that divine transformation right. within. So I know where you got it from. I'm on to you. Okay. <laughs> um, an analogy that I relate to, and I think it's certainly apropos today on Mother's Day, is the alchemy that's required to carry, birth, and raise children. In pregnancy, a mother's body contains another's heart, mind, and organs. This is my, my first son on the first probably 10 minutes of his life. And, and so in my body is this alchemical process of creating organs and bones. And even the mother carries all of the potential feelings, talents, or mistakes a child will make. It's like in Rumi's poem, he writes, the bird song begins in the egg. If my child is a musician, it begins in me or in his ancestors generations ago. I love that idea of continuation and of kind of no beginning and no end. And both the material and the existential being begin in the mother. This is so utterly ordinary and also so extraordinary at the same time. So in labor and an unmedicated birth, which I had, is like 
the most painful thing I've ever felt. <laughs> but it's also accompanied by overwhelming joy. Holding on and letting go kind of co-arise. It burns like fire and it is immediately followed by the most immense feeling of relief. I remember holding Caleb for the first time, having just felt this most intense pain. They literally call it the, the, the ring of fire, which Johnny Cash had no idea what he was talking about in that song. Um, but immediately, I was just awash with love. I remember saying, there you are. I've been waiting for you. <laughs> and right there, a flame was lit in my heart. So that feeling became a thing. This feeling became embodied. If you've ever been loved by a mother, you know that love can be fierce and ablaze with beauty. I don't know exactly how this relates to the Lord's Prayer, but let me just try to offer this. Jesus was about a new world order. He taught that we, regular old humans, were part of ushering this world order forth. A birth image for sure can make us squeamish and a little sticky and uncomfortable, but that mother's energy, that birthing energy is in all of us. And if we could harness it, we could quite literally usher forth or birth a new world. You know, mothers and children are both separate and forever linked, um, autonomous and embedded. I love that phrase. I've heard it said that having a child is like having your heart beat outside of your body. And literally that very same heart beat in my body. It is the heart ablaze in beauty, walking around in the world. I know that there are good mothers out there and also bad mothers, and I don't at all want to minimize the harm that an unwell mother can do. But I think we all have ideas and wishes about that kind of archetypal mother love. And I just keep wondering if we couldn't learn to love the world like that, love all the creatures in it with the energy of a tender but fierce mother, can we allow the heart of the world to live in us too? And can that be transformative? This last line of the Lord's Prayer and Teilhard's quote is less like a closing, less like a, and now we're done to me, and more like a challenge. You are ablaze in beauty, now go discover fire. Yes, yes, yes. It's an invitation. What this makes me wonder is, what does it take for us to say yes? to the challenges of the world and to this very particular specific moment in time. A friend sent me a picture of this sign the other day and I'm like, why the heck not? I love you. You're probably thinking, you don't even know me, but if people can hate for no reason, I can love. I like this idea. I love that song. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, how do we learn to love the world and everything in it as a good mother loves her child as an extension of the self. This is how thoughts become things, how flames are lit in the world. Teilhard understood the universe as more than a place in which we exist. Through ongoing evolution and transformation, the universe also exists in us, just as that energy of God exists in us, just as the child exists in and apart from the mother. But still the question is, how do we do this? So much points back, of course, to developing a daily spiritual practice, a kind of softening of the body and the relaxing of the mind to help us hold suffering with joy, grief with hope, and pain with healing. In stillness, I think we learn to really appreciate dynamism, 
to stoke these fires within that help us show up in the world as our true selves, which is really what Jesus taught about. Okay, but still, what does this look like, Holly and Bill? <laughs> with, a, with a spiritual practice, I really begin, believe that love begins to live outside of our body and informs our action. Frederick Douglass, the very famous, he freed himself and became an abolitionist fiercely against the institution of slavery, wrote, I prayed for freedom for 20 years, but received no answer until I prayed with my legs. Mm. Yeah, meaning he got up and he walked himself toward freedom. He's exactly right. It's not enough to be in prayer and just hope that things will happen magically. Let's go back to mothering for a second. I, I have ideas about mothering. I can read about it a lot. I can read about what it means to be a good parent, a mindful parent. Um, but if I never put it into action, there's no alchemy. There's no actual transformation. I'll give a really personal and vulnerable example. And I'll talk to you about this. I won't go into details, but mothering is not all stickers and unicorns and cookies and stars. <laughs> if I'm being honest, there are moments when I just want to walk away, and I'm sure my own mother felt that way and would nod in agreement. We've been having a particularly challenging time lately with one of our sons. He's just really exercising autonomy in a way that is pushing a lot of boundaries. And he's probably on some unconscious level working out something that neither of us can quite put words to. He's my son who is adopted, and there's a core wound there, an abandonment wound that I have to learn to hold space for until he can really articulate it. He's literally pushing against us in a way, I imagine, just to test how far he can go until we just throw in the towel and say, I give up. I'm stubborn, which anyone who knows me well knows, and I don't give up, so I sure as heck am not going to give up on my child. I've asked friends who are therapists and mothers, one who is a child psychiatrist. I've asked Bill, who reminded me about you know, the playfulness of emotional judo, the push-pull, the dynamism, the flame of that, and I've had to learn to be love to my son in a different way. So that's love becoming a thing. Love being words and a feeling, but also backed by action and, and strong but tender boundaries. I'm so grateful in this moment for the spiritual practice of contemplation because I think without it, I would have not very much space between a trigger and a response. And even though my values don't change as a parent from kid to kid, I've learned that I have to parent each of my children using different tools. They need different things from me. I've had to learn to transform fire or anger into water and sometimes water back into fire. Remember Teilhard's quote that love harnesses all the elements. Shoot, I'm learning to be water and fire in the same moment in saying what you are doing is not okay and I love you. I swear I could not even be a halfway decent parent if I did not attend to my own inner self, my own spirit. I think that makes one thing really hard about love, not one thing, there's a lot of hard things about love, but one thing that's hard to accept is that when we love deeply, we're so much more susceptible to deep hurt. And I really think that in the world, if I translate what it is to be a mother and feel hurt with and for my son, the world is hurting right now. We're in a really hurting yep. place. And we've never been exactly here 
in this moment in time ever before. It's a time when we're calling on our tools. We're asking, what do we need to do? What do we need to learn? And the ones we've cultivated through practice and acquiring wisdom will come in really handy. Yeah, we have to use our tools in new ways, or in alchemical language, transmutate the elements. The elements themselves don't ever change. Earth, air, fire, water, and ether. But the ways we harness them must change if we want to rediscover fire. So I told you in uh, one of our work sessions this week that <clears throat> we heard John Meacham yeah. speak. Um, John Meacham is a historian who's uh, on the faculty at Vanderbilt and probably the leading, well, Doris Kern also is uh, a, a his presidential historian, mm -hmm. but John Meacham is one of the really great voices about what has been the history of, the, uh, of America. And he was asked on this program, have we ever been here before where we are? And he said that we have that he said, you know, the, the ground that the United States is on right now is really perilous. And uh, he said, we, the only other time that we have been where we currently are is right before the breakout of the so-called Civil War. So when you say we're living in a hurting time, that's true. And when people hurt, um, they sometimes do things to hurt. Yeah. And when people are angry, they sometimes do angry things. And um, that's why I really appreciate your talking about the value of a daily spiritual practice. The things that have attracted me to the people who have been my best teachers have been the fact that they're happy mm. and they are at peace. And I've wanted to know, what do you, what do you know that I don't know? Why, how do you live your life that I don't live? And though that's been very important. And in that regard, I, I, I want to offer an example mm. of using tools to lead to transformation. And this is a way that I can sneak in uh, some of the religious literacy stuff that <laughs> I like to talk about because it has been so personally transforming for me. Um, I know that my personality in, on the Enneagram is one that loves to acquire information and knowledge. I have a thirst for that. I read a lot. I've got like four or five books going at once. <laughs> but let me take you on a little journey of discovering something about what you're hearing here in ordinary life, what you have heard over the years, and the kind of things that will shape uh, our future uh, going forward. A couple of years before I began teaching ordinary life, which was in 1998, I had taken some time off from teaching, I got introduced to Marcus Borg. Sadly, Marcus died yeah. a couple of years ago. Marcus was, when he died, the leading authority on Jesus in the English-speaking world. His friend now, uh, John Dominic Crossan, has inherited that title. Yeah. John, he, John and Marcus wrote books together. So our former senior pastor, Dr. Jim Bankston, had attended a week of Borg's lectures in uh, Washington State. And when he came home, he brought a sack of cassettes. Mm -hmm. That's just how long ago it was. Remember cassettes? Except we did have CDs then. You just didn't use them. <laughs> I didn't know about CDs then. 
So the, the, the first book of Borgs that I read was this one, Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time. If you haven't read it, I, I encourage you. It's an easy read. Bill, did you read that in 1998? I read it later. Okay, I read that book in 1998. Yeah. I was just going to say that would be an interesting synchrony. Well, we, made it, we yeah. may have read it at the same time. And, Actually, yeah. if the truth were known, I think the first book of Borgs I read was reading the Bible again for the yeah. first time. Yeah. And then I read this. I've, I own a number of Borgs books. Mm -hmm. I think uh, the book he co-authored with Crossan on the last week and the other one they co-authored on the first Christmas are just outstanding things mm -hmm. to read. But I love Borg stuff. So reading Borg got me interested in the Jesus Seminar and the scholars who make it up. Now, long before I had encountered Borg, I had been reading John Shelby Spong. Um, I'd been reading him for a number of years, and that opened me up to the scholarship that was taking place in both biblical studies and Jesus studies. As a matter of fact, mm -hmm. it was Stephen Patterson, who is a member of the Jesus Seminar, who has written several books on the Gospel of Thomas that got me interested in the Gospel of Thomas. Mm. And mm. Uh, it was Patterson's work that took me on like a two or three year deep dive into the Gospel of Thomas. Mm -hmm. um, I love that collection mm. of the sayings of Jesus. So the Jesus Seminar was founded in 1985 by Robert Funk, who was one of the leading New Testament scholars at that time in, in the world. Again, Funk died a few years ago, but he left a wealth of wonderful material. When Funk founded the Jesus Seminar, it was founded by about 150 people 50 biblical scholars and 100 lay people, mm -hmm. lay scholars. And if you read the works of Daramu de Miracu, you're seeing that he thinks that the future of the church is going to come from the lay scholarship, not from the academic or ecclesiastical scholarship mm -hmm. of the church. All of these people donated their time to the Jesus Seminar. No one got paid. No one's travel expenses were ever covered. You covered your own expenses to be involved in the committed research that these people did into the deeds and sayings of Jesus. Now, the reaction to the Jesus Seminar on the part of some people was vitriolic, to say the least. You could discredit someone, like me, for example, by just saying what well, he believes the teachings of the Jesus Seminar, and that you just get written off immediately that way. Hmm. What, the, what the Jesus Seminar dared to do was to say what biblical scholars had been saying since the late 1800s, and that is that there were some sayings in the New Testament attributed to Jesus that are not historically accurate. Now, those kinds of conclusions about biblical scholarship that were coming onto the scene in the late 1800s, the early 1900s, they stayed in, the, in what's called the academy. They stayed in the circle of academic scholars interested in biblical studies. They did not make it into the curriculum of the average Sunday school. Yeah. That's a tragedy. What Robert Funk decided to do was to go public with their work, and they held their seminars publicly. 
um, they went out of their way to make sure that people knew what they were doing. So here, here's a favor I have to ask of you. When this time is over today, if you have the time, and it won't take that long, go into your browser and go to Wikipedia and look up the Jesus Seminar and read what, it has, what Wikipedia has to say about it and, and see what you think about um, their scholarship, their conclusions, the way they worked, the kind of people who made them up, that sort of thing. Um, I think it would be really good for you to do. Mm. One of the things that came out of the scholarship of the Jesus Seminar <laughs> was this book, The Five Gospels, What Did Jesus Really Say? Um, I think this book should be not only in your library, but also be read by anyone who is seeking to use Jesus as a teacher and guide in the living of life. Now, in this book, you will find uh, the four Gospels that are in the Christian collection, as well as the Gospel of Thomas. And they're presented in this book in the order uh, in which they were written. <laughs> that is... They're Mark, Matthew, Luke, John, and then the Gospel of Thomas, which is not accurate because in my conclusion, the sayings in the Gospel of Thomas predate what we have in Mark, especially, and, and the other Gospels. But they didn't listen to me about that. <laughs> so interspersed all through this book are commentaries about why and how the Jesus Seminar reached the conclusions it did about various passages. It's just really illuminating. Now, if you get this book, you will see that some of the sayings of Jesus are in red ink. I remember when I was a kid in church, I got a, did you get a Bible in church? I didn't go to Sunday school oh. for long enough. Okay. I didn't actually start going to church regularly until I was 14. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, <laughs> you just see, oh. <laughs> kids get Bibles. I think I'm about to get fired, y'all. <laughs> I, I, I think. Yeah. I know. My kids have gotten Bibles from here. I got yeah. a Bible mm -hmm. in church, and the mm -hmm. big deal that I got was a, a red letter edition. Mm -hmm. And when I asked what that meant, I was eight, nine years old, and I was told, oh, the, the words that are in red are words that Jesus said. And I was such a smart aleck uh -huh, kid. I uh -huh. said, well, what about the things he did? Are they in red? <laughs> They're pretty important too. Yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, he taught in, indeed um, by behavior as well as by what he said. So you'll see that some of the sayings are in red, some are in pink, some are in gray and some are in black. Now, red means that the conclusion of the scholars was that Jesus did say the passage quoted or something very like it. Pink means that Jesus probably said something like this. Gray means that he did not say this, but it contains his ideas. <laughs> and black means that he cannot that he did not say it at all. Now you can read all about the criteria that the Jesus Seminar used to establish the colors that they attributed to the sayings of Jesus. And uh, it, there, this is in the Wikipedia article as well. So in that light, 
Here is what the Jesus Seminar's translation of the Lord's Prayer looks like. There are two words in red. Oh, wow. There's a lot in pink. There is some in gray. And there is a fair amount in black. I love knowing this stuff. By the way, this this book was published, uh, The Five Gospels was published in 1996. And three years after that, Robert Funk came out with his own Gospel of Jesus. And several years ago, I taught my way through that narrative. If you've never read the narrative of the life of Jesus in one sitting, uh, The Gospel of Jesus is another book that you should have in your collection. There have been, I think, four or five Gospels of Jesus created since the original narratives, I mean the narratives that we have in our collection. A lot of the narratives of Jesus didn't make it into the canon for some reason. We'll talk about that some other time. Uh, Thomas Jefferson created one. Um, Like Thomas Jefferson the president? Huh? The president, oh. yeah. He created one. He took the scissors and cut out everything miraculous oh. in the New Testament. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, a Russian author whose name I'm blocking on right now, created Tolstoy, created one. Uh, Stephen uh, Mitchell created one. Um, the Gospel of Jesus by Stephen Mitchell. The introduction to that book is worth the price of mm. admission mm. because he he talks about why was it that Jesus focused so much of his teaching on God as a loving parent and on the role of forgiveness in, in his ministry. Um, and then Robert Funk created one. I think that's it. Mm. That's, that's, that's all we have. Um, I, so I, I recommend knowing this stuff. I think it's really helpful to have this academic information um, because it undergirds what we're saying. It gives it a kind of solid foundation mm-hmm. to know that we're just not spinning this stuff out of thin air. Well, it's also so, I mean, this is why I love reading people like Teilhard, um, Ilya Delio, um, uh, I mean, the list goes on, but just people who keep the words evolving, keep the ideas evolving, not even necessarily the script, like how things are interpreted, but how do we evolve into being, you know, what there's um, a guy who, um, gosh, I'm totally blanking on his name. My professor would be very disappointed. The guy who founded Waldorf, Steiner, Mm -hmm. um, who said, you know, we will have evolved or arrived when we, we ha- need all these teachers as human beings. We needed Krishna, we needed Buddha, we needed Christ, but we, the evolution is to actually have the love of all three in our hearts. Mm-hmm. And, and that that's fire, mm-hmm. right? So get back to Teilhard, Teilhard's concept of alchemy and kind of transformation of the elements does not sidestep pain. And so often we look for either religion or psychology to help us um, minimize pain. But just as that kind of final push of labor is the most intense, so too there's sort of a collective groan that emits at the birth of each new level of consciousness. Teilhard called this evolution, right? That these groans and and pain and evil. Pain conscripts itself to memory, even if only in the cells of the body. 
in part, transforming our suffering requires a sort of truth-telling, uh, being able to acknowledge the pain in the body, which is the first step toward personal and collective liberation. I'll go back to a real-world example that I talked about earlier of how an old wound is being transformed. Right now, an old friend of mine and a brilliant artist, Rick Lowe, he was one of the founders of Project Row Houses here in Houston. And another acquaintance of ours, um, Marlon Hall, he's a, a social anthropologist, are working on the Greenwood Art Project. They're collecting stories from the descendants of those who survived the Tulsa massacre that I mentioned earlier. Some of the families were able to rebuild, but so, so much was lost. This is one image from a stream of film that Marlon took of just empty doorsteps, you know, just empty stoops. So these stoops once led to businesses and homes and buildings, and all that's left are the steps leading to nothing. So what I'm reading and learning as this is coming out, um, and, and this, this event was kept very quiet for a long time in history. I certainly was never taught about it in school. But these stories live in people's bodies. They live in the descendants of, of, of the people who survived bodies. They're whispers in the environment like this. Something was once here. Something is no longer here. You can see these steps, and again, you know, there's, there was one picture that Marlon had of a man standing at the top of the steps holding a doorway, as if he's passing through a threshold, just holding the door. Just beautiful. So they're really working to collect these stories and put them out there. The descendants of families who still live in the area bear the scars of the untold stories. They've been bottled and kept shut for the large part. But airing them allows community healing, allows um, them to come up from the ashes, even if it's 100 years later. Remember that first law of thermodynamics, that matter can neither be created nor destroyed. It can only change shape. And in this case, matter became memory, and now memory healed can find a new way of being in the world through art, through storytelling, through naming history. We recently got this children's book for the boys that um, teaches about the Tulsa massacre. It's a beautifully illustrated book. When fire is managed, so let's say like a controlled burn, it's restorative and nurturing and transforming. A controlled burn also needs air to thrive. You know what happens when you put, let's say, the, the, the top back on a candle. The candle fizzles out. Stories also need air. Memories need air so that the memory keepers can help societies and communities become whole. I know a, a while ago I said, you need to read this book, The Giver. Um, I loved it. I, I think you were like, I don't understand why Holly loves this book so much. But it's a, a lesson in what happens when we forget. Mm -hmm. This was a society that could not be transformed, that could not find new ways of being. It was rote. It was same. It was uncreative. The, the powers that be wanted it that way because the association was that memory causes pain. So there was a single man who was responsible, and he, this is the giver, who was responsible for keeping all of the memories of the society. And he was just hurting. 
and each generation a new giver is announced and the giver then starts the process of passing the memory down to the next giver who then holds the memory for the society so that no one ever has to feel pain, which means that they also have no deep joy. There's no transformation of one to the other. Do you know that, you know that Hindu legend about where divinity is stored? Mm -hmm. I love that story and I'll tell it again here. There's a Hindu legend about a time when all humans were gods, but they abused their divinity. And Brahma, the chief god, decided to take divinity away from us and hide it where we would never find it again. Brahma called together a council of the gods to help him decide where to hide the divinity. He said, let's bury it deep in the earth. But Brahma said, no, 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 that will not do. One day they will dig deep down into the earth and they will find it. Then the gods said, let's sink it into the deepest ocean. And again, Brahma replied, no, 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 not there. They will learn to dive into the deepest waters and search the ocean and find it. And then the gods said, well, let's take it to the top of the highest mountain and hide it there. And again, Brahma replied, no. Eventually, they'll climb the highest mountain, and someday they will find it. So the gods gave up and said, we don't know where to hide it. It seems like there's no place on earth in the sea or the heavens that the humans will not eventually search. Brahma thought for a long while, and he said, here's what we'll do. We'll hide their divinity deep down inside them. The humans will search the whole world. They will never look for it inside themselves. Ever since then, the legend concludes that humans have been roving the earth, climbing, digging, diving, exploring, and searching for something that all along we've had within. I love that story. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it feels like a total act of insanity to believe in the strength of love or the audacity of hope, as Barack Obama called it. Um, on your recommendation and Matt Russell's recommendation, I've been reading uh, Brian Doyle's sort of short I meditation. I love this book. Yeah, yeah. I'm reading like two, the, the chapters you can read in oh, two or three yeah. minutes. They're, they're, some are really short and some yeah. are a couple pages. Um, but it's one lo long river of song. And he died not too long ago of a brain tumor. But these are um, writings of his that were accumulated over time and have recently been published in this book. So I fell asleep the other night and it's it's really, it's almost 20 years on the um, commemoration of 9-11, and you've been teaching, you, it really reoriented you. But I've been thinking so much about 9-11 recently because of this story that he wrote. I fell asleep one night because I read his um, story, Leap. Look it up if you can. It's stunning and, and harrowing at the same time. I fell asleep that night that I read it with the image of bodies tumbling head over heel, overhead, as they jumped from the South Tower on 9-11. They estimate that a couple hundred people at least jumped because of the fear of what was happening. And what's so hauntingly beautiful about his word picture is of these two people clasping hands, leaping from a window in one of the most horrific circumstances that we have known, knowing that they will not survive this leap. But his focus is not on the harrowing piece of that and the sort of inevitable death that's to come, but his focus is on the fact, and, he, and I quote, that we are capable of such extraordinary, ordinary, succinct, ancient, naked, stunning, perfect, simple 
ferocious love. They chose an act of love just before they died from one of the most evil acts in our recent history. This simple gesture signifies everything beautiful that we are capable of, even in the face of terror and fear and quite literally in the thick of the fire. And such grace is why we are here at all. Everything we know was created from that first primordial fireball that we now call the Big Bang. And we have that fire in our bones and in our hearts. We literally have it inside. Thus, we also already have the ability to harness that element and transform it into love, into something as simple as holding hands. Of course, holding hands did not change the outcome of this couple's death in the story. It didn't save them. But for just the briefest moment, it transformed fire into love. And forever seared in our minds is the image of these two people, for sure terrified, choosing this simple act in the last seconds of their lives. He writes, human beings are capable of such greatness and holiness within them like seeds that open under great fires. You know that there are some seeds of plants that only open mm -hmm. if, the fire, if, if there's a forest fire. And we're capable of that in every moment. Part of Teilhard's vision for humanity is to deepen our awareness that we belong to this vast reality, that we can trust in this slow process of evolution of the seed that grows from fire. And a prayer that I kind of end with or, or, or wrote as we were writing through this moment is, Maybe, may we be in awe of the sun's fire coursing through our veins and the ancient stardust in our bones and all of the miracle of material existence and the ineffability of spiritual experience and all of love's ability to transform suffering into liberation. If we can imagine new ways of living in communion, make space for truth-telling, and healing that leads to collective liberation makes space for memory. If we follow this trajectory, we guarantee that the last word will be love. That's beautiful. You know, we were asked six months ago, or maybe longer, by somebody who watches if we would create a list of books and we started one. Mm -hmm. We need to add to it. We need to add yeah. to it. Yeah, got a few more. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm, I was sitting here thinking, you know, how often we mention books in here. We gotta give the people the first, uh, to get through the first ones. There's about 25 on there right now. <laughs> this is one that I really think you would love. Mm -hmm. I, I, Matt, as Holly said, Matt Russell recommended this book to me. I recommended it to Holly and um, I, I read two, maybe two brief writings in it every day, and I, I see the book coming to an end, and I'm already in this anticipatory grief of what, what's it going to be like when you're not with me anymore, Brian? I've um, read Leap probably four times in the last week. So it's I think a, it's you, such you a beautiful story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, speaking of books. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of books, mm -hmm. here's a book um, that we are recommending. It's the latest of Dara Muraku's book, Doing Theology in an Evolutionary Way. And I want to read to you a paragraph 
three-sentence paragraph from it that's on the screen. Uh, for almost 2,000 years, we have adopted a patriarchal backdrop to our understanding of the Christian faith and the ensuing shape of Christian theology. Most Christians are not even aware of this baggage. Mm. It's unconscious. Consequently, many of us inhabit an inner space badly damaged by internalized oppression. Mm. He put the, those two words in italics. In keeping with the spirit of nonviolent living as Jesus wishes all Christians to live, we should never collude with our own oppression. Mm. Christians have been doing that for centuries. It's part of what the culture war right now is about. The Christian message by American white folk religion has co-opted Christianity and taken it right into right-wing politics. And that's what I believe we're seeing played out in the, the current political divisiveness of our time. It's what uh, Joanna Macy calls the great turning. And what we are in the midst of right now is a true unveiling. Mm -hmm. Holly has talked about apocalypse a lot. But it's drawing our attention, if we will but see it, to the disasters that business as usual has caused us and is continuing to cause us. So, I believe that what our spiritual work must be about in going forward is whatever it takes for us to be reconnected. And perhaps better said, for us to be wisely and usefully connected in four places. To ourselves, to each other, to the earth, and to sacred mystery, which transcends, includes everything. Joanna Macy calls this the work that reconnects, and she sees it as a journey that has four stages. The first is gratitude, where we experience simply our love for life, our love for being here, our love for being able to do this, our love for being able to read books, to see the images that we see, to hear the stories that we hear. We are so fortunate. We are not living in Afghanistan. The second stage is one where we honor the pain in this world, some of which we have been the unconscious but complicit actors in creating, some of which, as America refers to, we experience without even being aware of it. This is part of our really important work to do. Jesus was really good at seeing and advocating for those who suffer. And then the third step is to see our connection with life in all of its form through all the ages. Then we develop the skills and the courage to live in this world as open human beings. That is, we live with an awareness that we're part of the great web of life along with everyone else and along with all that is. If we live with the consciousness of Jesus... We won't need to dodge any of this stuff. We don't need to deny it. We don't need to numb out in seeing and facing the suffering and the dangers that are affecting our world. I further believe that as we live into the kind of empowering community Jesus taught and lived, 
we ourselves will live not only with compassion for our suffering brothers and sisters, but also with more energy to be with the suffering in ways that can lead to healing. This is the love that we're to say yes to. So say yes. First and foremost, say yes to and about yourself. So many people are so hard on themselves. I'm coming more and more to see how important we are to each other in this process. It takes both courage and awareness to live this, and it takes giving up our usual way of measuring things. We really do need each other. And even if the instrument you play in the orchestra is the piccolo, the orchestra is not complete <laughs> without you. There's no Shakespeare without the printer and the bookbinder. It takes courage to accept your acceptance that I learned from Paul Tillich. It takes courage to believe that everybody is accepted, that we learn from Jesus. It takes courage to know that we're all blood relatives, that peace and justice for all is the beginning and end of life, that love cannot be defeated. You know, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, the priest and the Levite were condemned for simply doing nothing, while the wounded traveler who had been beaten by robbers left, lay by the roadside. In the parable of the rich man and Dives, Lazarus and Dives, the rich man was condemned for simply doing nothing to meet the needs of the beggar who was at his gate every day. In the parable of the last judgment, those who relegated to outer darkness were condemned simply because they had done nothing to minister to such human need as hunger, thirst, and nakedness. Here's a working fact of life. You lose what you don't use. I grew up in Tennessee, south of Kentucky, where uh, Mammoth Cave is, and I can remember taking a tour of that cave many times. And as a young child, learning that the fish in Mammoth Cave have no eyes. Mm. They don't need them in the dark. So over the evolution of time, fish evolved with no eyes. Use it or lose it. And the other side of that is that regular use of what we have been given increases our competency. If you want to ruin a garden, you just don't have to plant, you don't have to plant weeds in it, just leave it alone. If you want to wreck your marriage, just don't bother working at it, maintaining it. We treat our cars better. You want to lose your faith, just don't work at it. What you become depends not so much on what you have been, but on the degree to which your past is shaped by what and where you are today. The only way I know for you or me or anyone to do that is by saying yes to some things. Say yes to yourself. Say yes to the disciplines and techniques and practices that help you grow into your true self, as Holly has talked about today. Say yes to, your earth, to this earth as if our lives depended on it, for they do. And say yes to that sacred mystery that gave birth to all that is and all who are. Someone asked the guru on the mountaintop, what can I do to attain enlightenment? And the guru said, if you wish enlightenment, there are two things that you must know. First, all efforts to attain enlightenment are of no avail. And the student said, and the second, and the guru said, you must act as if you did not know this. <laughs> I love that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. 
No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I'll see you here next week. Mm -hmm.